Our sermon today is from Psalm 129. These are God's words. A song of ascent. Many times they have assailed me from my youth up. Let Israel now say, Many times they have assailed me from my youth up, yet they have not prevailed against me. The plowers plowed upon my back, they lengthen their furrows. Yahweh is righteous, he has cut the cords of the wicked. Let all those who hate Zion be put to shame and turn backward. Let them be like the grass on the rooftops, which dries up before it grows up, with which the reaper does not fill his hand, nor the binder of sheaves the fold of his garment. And those who pass by will not say, the blessing of Yahweh be upon you. We bless you in the name of Yahweh. You can take your seats. The first time we considered the psalm, we drew out by implication the reality of covenantal identity. Israel was being called by the psalmist to identify with the past sufferings of the body that they were a part of. Because of the invisible bonds of the covenant that were made with them by God, that were passed on and go down through history, they suffered with Israel and its youth, and they would continue to suffer. They suffered because of their identity. The people of God will in all times be hated by wicked men because wicked men hate God. This principle taught in the psalm is nothing less than what our Lord taught us in the Gospel of John in chapter 15, where it says, If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. This covenantal reality is built into the fabric of the world. It is an inescapable concept. And in the last sermon, we showed the implications that this has for our children. The world will also hate our kids because whether we recognize it or not, God made covenant with them also. He identifies with them. So they can freely sing the psalm with us. Children have always been part of the covenant body Israel. And our children, just like us, can identify with the sufferings that the body has endured from its youth onward. We considered the fact that Israel's children, its babies, were destroyed by Pharaoh because they were part of Israel. Israel's children suffered in the desert. They walked for miles in the heat and without a home with the adults. Israel's children also suffered in Babylon as aliens in a foreign land, identifying with their parents. And now the wicked powers of our day will love to destroy Israel's children again. The nature of the covenant has not changed. Covenant households suffer together. And like I said last time, if the children of the covenant are going to suffer with us, they ought to receive the blessings of the covenant with us as well. It is cruel for them to experience the sufferings of the covenant with us naturally, but we withhold the blessings of the covenant from them unnaturally. So we ought to suffer together as households and receive the blessings of God together as households. We include our little brothers and sisters in everything we do here at Redwood in accordance with the covenant. Today we are going to build upon our understanding of covenantal suffering taught in the first two verses of the psalm by applying the rest of the psalm to the upcoming election. Well, I'm sure that none of you will be aghast at the prospect of me preaching about politics from this pulpit, 
one identifying marker of Redwood is that we want to have all of Christ for all of life, and that includes Christ's wisdom for politics and for healthcare and for education. It includes Christ's standards for justice. We want his wisdom and direction when it comes to food, clothing, and baby making. Nothing is off the table or outside the scope of this pulpit. And this is ultimately because everything is given to us by God for his glory. So we must endeavor to glorify God in the use of everything he has given us. Whatever you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. All things are to be ruled and governed by God for his glory. As Abraham Kuyper famously said, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. So for this reason, we're going to dive into politics again. And this um, is the perfect springboard to do so. In God's providence, we are here in this fitting passage the week before the election. And it is my hope that it will help you navigate this time as our country, as a whole, suddenly becomes desperate for contradicting democratic outcomes. We will return to the psalm in the coming weeks and apply it to different areas of life. But for now, there are some great applications to the political realm that are very needed in our time. First, let's take a look at what the rest of the psalm is saying. This psalm is about suffering, that's clear, but it is also about fruitfulness. And I actually think that fruitfulness is the main theme or the main thread that ties this psalm together. Let me show you how it does that. In verse 3, suffering is described as plowing. The plowers plowed upon my back, they lengthened their furrows. Did any of you think that this was a bit of a random way to describe suffering the first time we considered this text? What a horrible image. A sharp, immovable piece of steel being driven into your back and a powerful beast dragging it across you until you have deep furrows across your back. This image describes the pain of persecution graphically, and in this way you could say it does it fittingly, but it is also a very specific way of describing a painful experience, and this specific form of suffering seems pretty detached from the actual means of suffering that Israel endured. He could have described it any other way. There is little overlap with murderous wars, the murderous wars that they suffered through, and plowing. And plowing is typically considered a good thing, right? It is not typically done on a human back. It is done in the dirt. Plowing, in a sense, violently turns over the earth, and this breaking of the ground is for a good end. It is the ideal preparation for seed for a crop. Without plowing, seed finds it hard to take root. So if you want to maximize fruitfulness, you must plow. You must plow grooves in the earth. Now this plowed field, which is Israel, is contrasted in this um, with grass on the roof. Let's read verses 5 through 7 again. Let all who hate Zion be put to shame and turn backward. Let them be like grass on the rooftops, which dries up before it grows up, with which the reaper does not fill his hand. 
nor the binder of sheaves, the fold of his garment. The wicked are called to be rootless, fruitless gutter grass. Is there anything more useless, more annoying than gutter grass? Absolutely useless growth. A parasitic houseplant, because its roots do not go deep, it never grows big enough to give you fruit. Their roots couldn't possibly go deep enough because they have to work through the bricks or the hard plastic guttering. They are root-bound. They were not made to grow where they are planted. They fail to produce a crop because of where they are planted. They grow only to be uprooted by the owner of the house. That is the only good outcome for them, to be pulled up and dried up on a weed pile. It will never be said of these wicked plants, verse 8, the blessing of Yahweh be upon you. We bless you in the name of Yahweh. Why? Well, one obvious reason is because they are wicked. God hates wickedness. They hate God and his people. So why would God bless the agents of his people's persecution? It's pretty straightforward. But the main reason they are not blessed is because they are fruitless. You can't reap anything from them. Without fruit, they are worthless. That is how the psalmist frame things. He highlights the uselessness of their lack of fruitfulness. They are life suckers, leeches on God's house, the earth. They are gutter grass. And as it is with every good poem or song, this psalm is filled with mixed imagery. In this case, the, the one plowing the backs of Israel, they are the gutter grass. Now, gutter grass cannot drive a plow right. Gutter grass is utterly unproductive. Nevertheless, their evil, in a sense, prepared Israel for greater fruitfulness. God used their evil, and this can aptly be described as plowing. This is how he prepares Israel for a harvest. And this idea of God in some sense causing suffering is not something isolated to Old Testament Israel either. Consider what Paul says of the people of God in Philippians 1.29. For to you, that's the New Testament church, it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. Belief has been granted to us. Suffering has been granted to us. Granted for his sake, for Christ's sake. There is a telos to suffering, and that telos achieves God's ends. So he grants it. Many in the church today would have major trouble with the idea that God has any agency over our suffering. But if God is to get the glory from the fruit, from the harvest, he must get the glory for the plowing because that contributed to the good, praiseworthy outcome of the crop. God prepares his people through suffering for greater fruitfulness and for his own glory. This plowing is, in other places, called pruning. John 15.2 says, Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Pruning is like Plowing. It is not a pleasant experience, but it is for our good, for the long term good of greater fruitfulness. 
consider why God allowed enemies to remain in the land in the book of Judges, chapter 3. He says this, Now these are the nations which Yahweh allowed to remain, to test Israel by them. That is, all who had not known of any of the wars of Canaan, however, God tested them in order that the generations of the sons of Israel would know war by learning more, especially those who had not known it formerly. So God allowed enemies to remain in the land so that Israel would have to fight, so that they could learn to fight. The fruit that God desired from Israel was a nation of effective fighters. Some would die because of this. Israel would suffer because of the existence of these enemies, but they would learn war. This was a sufficient reason for God to allow Israel to go through great suffering, the sufferings of war. So instead of rejecting the concept that God is granting suffering, because he is bringing about good ends from it, we should boast in it as Paul did. Notice what, uh, what he says in Romans 5, 3 to 5, and why he boasts in his afflictions. He says, Not only this, but we also boast in our afflictions, knowing that affliction brings about perseverance, and perseverance, proven character, and proven character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. So what was the fruit of suffering that Paul highlights here? Perseverance, proven character, and hope. Without suffering, you do not get perseverance and proven character. Our psalm today deals with the tensions I've highlighted around God's sovereignty and suffering. It deals with them by fleshing out a fuller understanding of suffering. It recognizes the evil of those who constantly persecute Israel. It shows how God cannot tolerate the gutter grass that does this to Israel, that he cuts the cords of their plows in time, and that he is in the business of uprooting these weeds in time as well. It also, through this plowing imagery, puts suffering for God in its proper frame. Plowing is good. And he describes their suffering in this way. Without plowing, the people of God would be as rootless and fruitless as the gutter grass. Plowing is rough, but it produces the fruit of righteousness in Israel so that people will say of those who have been plowed, the blessing of Yahweh be upon you. We bless you in the name of Yahweh. That's the implication of this psalm. This is counterintuitive to the flesh, isn't it? The flesh is nearsighted, even blind to the unseen future blessings of faithfulness through suffering. The spiritually mature understand that you will meet suffering on the path to blessing. Consider Psalm 126 now, also a psalm of ascent. It states this principle that suffering leads to a good end in the last two verses. It says, Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. Those who go out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. 
sow in tears, reap shouts of joy. Any suffering for God's sake is like planting a seed that will mature into a fruitful crop. So what has this got to do with politics? Well, our nation is about to vote in some rooftop grass. Whatever side makes it in, left or right, they have been the agents of our suffering, albeit relatively mild suffering at this point. Labour has been in power, but every party has been pro-lockdown. They were all on board with taking on the debt required to fund these lockdowns. They were all pro-vaccine mandate, pro-people losing their jobs for their vaccine agenda. They all approved the shutting down of the church. They are all haters of the fetters of the Lord and his anointed. They do not think God's law is good. And we can see this most clearly in the fact that they are all pro-aborts. And their policies have disproportionately affected the faithful, the church. We have been ploughed because of this. We are the ones who want to take responsibility for ourselves and our homes, but they would hinder our ability to do this, to be fruitful. Our economy and the jobs that we hold are, are suffering because of it. Our crop of politicians know nothing about producing godly fruit. They are a fruitless crop of leafy gutter dwellers. Therefore, whatever happens next week, there is no way other nations will pass by us saying, the blessings of Yahweh be upon you. We bless you in the name of Yahweh. We are on the decline. Righteousness exalts a nation. And a nation not rooted in the good soil of righteousness will not only be not exalted, it will wither. That is a direct application from our psalm today. This is God's world, and fruit grows one way, the way he made it to grow. Like I said, they know nothing of this kind of fruitfulness. They expect a crop to come from dropping their roots down into the cracks of roofs. But the owner of the house will remove them in time. The house they are squatting on is the son's inheritance. And wouldn't the son dishonor his father if he gave his gutters to the grass? Now, I need you to understand that I'm not piling on this coming government just for effect. I truly believe we have fallen in an extraordinary way, and it is hard to capture it with words. For example, it is well known that we, as a nation, own the title of the nation with the most extreme abortion laws in the world. In the world. Little, proud New Zealand planted on a fault line. How can you overstate our sickness? How can you overstate our nation's vulnerability to the God of nations? The church needs to be getting ready for what is coming. There is a God in the heavens, and he will not close his eyes to the bloodshed, and he will not close his eyes to all the forms of injustice in this land. It could get as bad as it gets. <clears throat> the way our freedom of speech laws are heading, I think the church is not far from experiencing the greatest persecution New Zealand has ever had. Our leaders hate Zion. They hate the people of God. 
This being the case, we are taught in this psalm how to sing. How? Verse 5. Let all who hate Zion, our coming government, be put to shame and turned backward. This is our first application that we can draw from the psalm today. It teaches us how to sing in times like these. The church needs to sing psalms. This is a righteous act that shifts political power. Do we really believe this? Where is the psalm singing? God will hear our psalms and act. So we should sing them and trust that he will put to shame, he will overturn or turn backward those who hate Zion. Now, I've not highlighted the trouble of our nation just to add to the depression you're probably already feeling as you look out over the wasteland that is our political landscape. I needed to lay this backdrop to highlight the hope found in this psalm. It holds out a glorious, long-term vision for a better, more fruitful nation. But it comes through our suffering, the church's suffering in particular. If we understand Christ's kingdom and its advance correctly, the church and Christian influence is the only hope for a better New Zealand. It is prophesied that as his kingdom extends through the ministry of the church, all the nations will experience greater prosperity and peace. We see this in Isaiah chapter 2, verses 2 through 5, which say, It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of Yahweh shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills, and all the nations shall flow to it, and many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of Yahweh, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of Yahweh from Jerusalem." He shall judge between the nations and decide disputes for many peoples, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hawks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of Yahweh. In this prophecy, we see that the nations come to the mountain of the house of Yahweh. We should understand this to be, this house of Yahweh, to be the church. We've established that before here at Redwood. And what do the nations come to us for? To learn his ways, to learn his law. We have been given his ways in the Bible. He gave them to us to steward. We are the pillars of truth in the world. And the world needs us to give them the truth. Isaiah also says that because of the ministry of the church, the result will be that the world beats their swords into plowshares. The means of war are transformed into the means of production, and wars will eventually cease. This will be a reality in New Zealand, and we've already had a small taste of it through the Christian influence. Well, someone might ask, what should we do with the teachings of Christ then that say he came to bring a sword? and not peace. Any good post-millennial teaching should sit the prophecies of Christ's kingdom of peace side by side with passages about Christian suffering without any hesitation. They are both true. 
Tertullian, one of the early church fathers, famously said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Notice his use of that word seed. Tertullian saw the connection between suffering and growth. So he called the blood of the martyrs seed. Again, suffering and seed are at the heart of our psalm today. The advance or growth of the church is connected with suffering and death. With all this being true, we as a church must be careful to keep both the advance of the church and its sufferings together. Both are essential. We don't suffer and die for the sake of dying itself. We die for growth. We die for life. As Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. One reason our nation is in the state it is now is because the church has not understood that death and the loss of earthly things is the means of advance. True fruitfulness will come only through the church being plowed, through us suffering abuse for righteousness' sake. But we've seen the plough coming for our backs, and we've rolled over, voting for the lesser of two gutter grasses. Instead of identifying with the suffering people, pushing in all our chips on faithfulness and living out our Lord's righteous standards, we've tried to prolong our deaths by voting in whatever rooftop crack dwellers will give us the more right-leaning government. And instead of suffering for righteousness' sake righteously, we have the likes of Pastor Tamaki saying, they made us suffer, now we must make them suffer. He thinks that it is wise to cause disruption because they caused us disruption. But Romans 12 says, never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. We heap hot coals on our enemy's head by doing righteous deeds. Some Christians are hoping to see more righteousness from our government by acting unrighteously. It's absurd. Do we as a church even know the God of the Bible? What the church and our nation needs is a thorough, deep-rooted Post-millennial reformation. Post-millennialism does not teach a salvation by government. We believe government must come under God's rule. We believe that good government is coming, that it matters, and that we should seek it. But we are not those who seek a good government at all costs. We do not make alliances with Egypt. We do not seek the help of one set of pagans when we see the superior forces of another set of pagans. We seek first the kingdom of God and firmly side with both the cause of righteousness and righteousness itself, letting the chips fall where they may. We can be patient with unideal governments because we have time. We're not going to be raptured anytime soon. There is work to do, and the zeal of the Lord of hosts will ensure in time that his work will be done. One day the government will be on his shoulders, and we can patiently wait for that.
This is how our Christian forefathers were able to appeal to wicked kings. They had an optimism as they went to their deaths. They called wicked men to act righteously, knowing that they might be killed, and many were. They understood that through their suffering, they advanced the kingdom. And they were ready to lay down their lives for a seed that sometimes only God would see planted. And by the constant pressure that the church put upon the wicked, and through a steady flow of their blood, much seed has been planted in this world. And we are now enjoying many of the fruits of the church's sufferings. So, what are we to do today? Redwood, what are we to do? First, we should identify with the suffering church, the historic one, the one that has suffered for righteousness' sake from its youth, and we ought to live like they did. Four, blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Second, we most certainly shouldn't be discouraged as we watch our nations decline. We should have hope for greater fruit. If our suffering is to increase and political persecution is to rise after this election, and it looks as though it will, it is for our good, and eventually the good of this nation. It is necessary that we be pruned, that we be ploughed, for the sake of fruitfulness, for the sake of greater prosperity in the land. We may not see the fruit in our lifetime even, but we know that the seed of the suffering is never wasted. It produces fruit long after it is planted. Third, we should remember the root systems of the wicked. They are not deep. They are gutter grass, clinging on by not much. They're nothing to worry about. Though it looks like they are flourishing and green right now, proudly perched up on a high place, they are destined to dry up. The sun who is over the house just needs to give them a little tug and they'll be over. He will cut the cords of their plows in time. Psalm 37 teaches us to place our hope and faith in the same things. We're going to read a large section of this psalm now. It says, Do not fret because of evildoers. Be not envious toward doers of unrighteousness, for they will wither quickly like the grass and fade like the green herb. Trust in Yahweh and do good. Dwell in the land and cultivate faithfulness. Delight yourself in Yahweh, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to Yahweh. Trust in him, and he will do it. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light, and your judgment as the noonday. Be still in Yahweh, and wait patiently for him. Do not fret because of him who prospers in his way because of the man who carries out schemes of wickedness. Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Do not fret. It leads only to evil doing. for evildoers will be cut off. But those who hope for Yahweh, they will inherit the land. Yet a little while and the wicked man will be no more. You will look carefully at his place and he will not be there. But the lowly will inherit the land, 
and will delight themselves in abundant peace. The wicked schemes against the righteous and gnashes at him with his teeth. The Lord laughs at him, for he sees that his day is coming. Amen. Do we believe this? We have a wonderful hope in our God who is ruling over all things. Next time we're going to consider the differing ways in which we can and must suffer for righteousness' sake. The suffering that God calls us to will not look the same for all of us, but we are all called to suffer. I've talked a lot about martyrdom today. That is something our body has suffered through many times before throughout the years. Hopefully it will not come to that for us. We will not experience that, but we need to be ready for it. So let's pray now and ask that God would help us to apply these things to the time that we live in. Father, we are so thankful to be identified as your people, to be identified with the suffering body. Lord, the blessings far outweigh the difficulty that we would go through. Lord, we thank you that you have been plowing this body, that you have been preparing us for more fruit. May we love fruit so much that we would be ready for the plowing. Lord, we are weak, we lack courage, we are sinful, and apart from you, we can do nothing. So Lord, help us to place our faith in this word that we've had today. Help us to place our faith in the scriptures and believe upon these things and act in accordance with it, Lord. May we joyfully suffer for your name's sake. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can stand.